If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. We will finish, Lord willing, chapter 3 this morning, and then next week we will pick up, uh, Lord willing, in Matthew chapter 4. Um, so if, if you are with us, I'm, I'm thankful that you've made it out. Glad you're here safely, um, and we are happy to, to offer a, an online option for those that, that didn't feel comfortable. Um, but we are here to gather around God's words. That's what we want to do. And so I'll read the passage in just a minute, but, but we're continuing just, just as we've, we've, we've kind of just entered into Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew, in this passage, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, so just those, the, those few verses there. But, but what Matthew is really doing here, it's continuing what, what, is, what he's been doing since the beginning of Matthew's gospel, but here, th- this is kind of the on-ramp to the public ministry of Jesus, and so he's continuing to highlight the theme that he's done these first three chapters, which is namely uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for all the world, that, that he came as the promised one. He's the Messiah. And Matthew has, has used this phrase, this, this was to fulfill what was written, or this is to, to bring to completion what the prophet had said. And so he's made very clear that Jesus is the promised one. But up, in this, up until this point, most of the events in Matthew's gospel have been limited in their scope meaning they're witnessed by, by a few people, like here's, a, here's the wise men, or here's Mary and Joseph, or, or here's this small group. Well, in these verses, th- this is Matthew making the very public commencement of this mission, of this Messiah and his mission. And so that the movement, we could say here in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, the movement goes public. This is the coronation of the king. Put simply, what we're going to see in these verses is that Matthew is going to recount the baptism of Jesus and all that follows in order to make crystal clear to his readers that Jesus is the promised one, the king who is ready to set out to the task at hand. The plan of redemption, the salvation of his people is now officially Underway, And so we're going to see that there's this transition from John to Jesus. And what we're going to see in, in this overlap, this is probably the greatest moment of John the Baptist's life. The moment he had been appointed for, the, the moment that the mantle is going to pass. And it's crucial for Jesus, as we'll see, in that this is the time he had been waiting for. And his time had finally come. Well, let's, let's read the verses, then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll walk through the verses together. So Matthew chapter 3. Verses 13 through 17, I'll read them, then I'll pray for us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, Well, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Let's pray for our time together. Father, I ask that as, as we spend these next few moments going over these verses, Lord, would you, would you help us not to just fall into familiarity, but would you help us to think about what is happening in these verses? Um, and would you help us to, to understand the identity of the one being baptized here, the, the one who identified with us in order that we might be able to identify with him through faith 
And so I pray for that this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so the main idea here, so the title of the sermon is The Identity of the King. It's not primarily about the baptism, it's about the identity of the one being baptized. And so I see in these verses, there's four points, and each point is, is evidence or a point highlighting the identity of the king. So we'll see first the baptism, and we'll spend the most time, just so you know, we're going to spend most of the time in verses 13, 14, and 15. And so when I, when I finally get through it and I say, okay, second point, don't, don't just sigh and be like, oh my goodness, we're only on second point. They're going to go a lot faster. Okay, so most of our times, point one, the baptism. Um, but the baptism is going to, going to highlight or, or um, point to the identity of Jesus in, in a unique way. And then verse 16, we'll see how the heavens opening are going to point to the identity of Jesus. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God there in verse 16 is going to highlight the identity of Jesus. And then finally, verse 17, the voice from heaven, which, which we're going to see, which I think you intuitively know is the voice of God the Father from heaven attesting to the identity of Jesus. So those are our four points. Let's start there. Verse 13, the baptism. And so as we look at these verses, we, we find an often discussed and potentially confusing interaction between this forerunner, John the Baptist, and the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus. And so if you're with us last week, you saw how John was the, the forerunner whose, whose whole ministry was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And he did so by, by proclaiming and preaching repentance, a, a baptism, come and be baptized, but, but accompanying the, the baptism was a confession of sin, a, a repentance. And so he's out in the wilderness saying, be baptized with a baptism of repentance in order to, to get ready for the Messiah. In other words, God's about to do something and you're not ready. So you need to repent and return to the Lord and get ready for the Messiah. And so he was baptizing with a baptism of repentance. And so in essence, when, when people are going out to John the Baptist, they're saying, we're repenting. We're affirming your message. We want to follow the Lord and we're, we're returning to him. We're, we're turning our lives around. We're, we're following him wholeheartedly and we're gonna wait for the salvation that he's gonna accomplish. So, so we're, we're listening to you, John. We're, we're gonna come and we're gonna do what you say. And so because of that, when we see in these verses the Messiah himself going to be baptized, it can be a bit puzzling. It can be a bit puzzling because look there at verse 13. So we know what John's doing. You know what his baptism is about. Then verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus comes out to John. He goes out of his way into the wilderness to John the Baptist for the specific purpose of being baptized by John. And so it's not like Jesus is just going down the street and he's like, oh, there, there's a guy in the river Jordan baptizing. Let me just go see what's going on. No, he sets his face to go to John for the specific purpose of being baptized by him, which then begs the question, why is the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the rest of the New Testament makes perfectly clear was without sin, why does this one come to be baptized with a baptism? Why does he submit to a baptism that was specifically for those who recognize their need for repentance? And that was the whole point of the baptism. Why does Jesus go to John to be baptized by him? And we already know from earlier in chapter 3 that Jesus is the one for whom John is preparing the way. And so there's not a question as to who's more significant, who's superior. We know Jesus is greater than John. We know Jesus is the one, the promised one, who's come. And yet here this superior one, this greater one, is coming to be baptized by the inferior one, the, the forerunner. And so the one, the one, capital O-N-E, comes to be baptized by the one preparing the way for the one. And so it can be confusing. 
And it seems that John gets this, this confusion. He, he's, he doesn't know what's going on. Look there at verse 14. Verse 14 says, John would have prevented him. So, so John recognizes, wait a minute, so, something's off here. And John says, well, I need to be baptized by you, and, and you're coming to me for me to baptize you? John recognizes something's backwards here. Now, it's interesting, Matthew is the only gospel writer that, that mentions John's hesitance. They all mention Jesus' baptism, but, but only Matthew gives us a, an insider's look on, onto John's tension here. <coughs> but we see John here in a way that, that's fitting, that, it, that goes along with all the, the rest that we know about John, that this, this humility, I mean, this unremarkable humility that, that accompanies John the Baptist. I mean, he recognizes Jesus is greater. I can't tie your sandals, and now you want, you want me to, to baptize you. I'm not worthy of this. I, I can't do this. No, no. In fact, he says, you, let, let's switch places. I need to be baptized by you. I think John knows he is the one with sin that needs repentance. And, and this one, whenever he knows about Jesus at this point, he knows this one is superior to him. And Jesus is the one who ought to be baptizing John. And so John, again, continues to highlight this difference between him and the coming one. And so he says no, which is, which is ironic, because remember last week, John told people no. Remember the Pharisees and Sadducees come. So earlier, John had difficulty baptizing the religious leaders because they were not worthy of his baptism. You, no, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Your, your life doesn't bear fruit and keep with repentance. I'm not baptizing you. Now he's, he's refusing for a totally different reason. I can't baptize you because this baptism is not worthy of you. And so it's irony here. Hey, you can't come because you're not worthy. Now you can't come because I'm not worthy, right? And he's refusing baptism just like up in verse seven, but here the dynamics are different. And so John says, no, 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 I'm not gonna do this. But we see despite that hesitance, Jesus prevails upon him. And so he convinces John to go through with the baptism. And it's what he says in verse 15 that brings about John's change. So, so John's reluctance is overcome by what Jesus says in verse 15. So what does he say in verse 15? Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so how do we understand what Jesus means there by verse 15? I mean, I think this is the most difficult question that we have to answer from the passage. And I do hope to answer it. But before I do, I just, I just want to zoom out and highlight the bigger picture here. Because we are going to spend the most time here, but, but we can not be totally clear on this and still get the main point of these verses because this baptism is not the main point of the verses. Though important, this answer isn't the main point. That's why the sermon's not titled The Baptism of the King. It's called The Identity of the King. So one commentator explains it this way. For Matthew, the importance of the event is not in the baptism itself, but in the revelation which follows it which culminates in the declaration that Jesus is God's unique son, a, a position which has been assumed in 2.15, but it's now brought out into the open. So the point is the identity of Jesus that the baptism precedes. And so, so the point is the identity of this one and what happens after the baptism. So I do want to help us think through why Jesus was baptized, but I also just want to make clear the significance of the baptism is only rightly understood when it's understood as playing a secondary or supporting role for this, this public revelation. This is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased, who is anointed by the Spirit of God. So all that to say, let, let's ask the question, what is Jesus talking about? First, there's three, three things we have to, to see from this, this response in verse 15. So first, there's the, the nowness. Uh, of the time. So Jesus tells John there's something about the present moment. Let's do this now to, to 
there's something unique about the now time. So there's the now and a second. There's the, the us part of this, this baptism. J- John plays a significant role. So Jesus says, let us, us do this now. Okay, so there, there's this us. There's something about John being a part of it. And then third, there's this idea of fulfilling all righteousness. Okay, now whether we like it or not, that's the reason Jesus was baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. That doesn't spell out why it's right, but that's the reason. So if someone says, well, why was Jesus baptized? All you have to do is say, to fulfill all righteousness. That's, that's correct. But we need, we need to work out what does that mean. So, so let's look at those three aspects. I mean, first, I think the most easily understandable is the now. So Jesus says, let us do this now. Now, now Jesus convinces John that there's something about the current state of things that makes his baptism appropriate. Notice Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong, John. I, I don't need to baptize you. He, he doesn't address that. At least Matthew doesn't record him addressing that. He says, John, now it's right for us to do this. So, so there's a nowness that, that makes it appropriate. It's not hard to understand if you think about Jesus now is at the, the outset of his public ministry. Right? We don't hear much about the time from, from him. One gospel writer has, a, has an occurrence when he's 12 years old in the temple, but from that time to now, there's, there's no mention of Jesus. But now is his coming out party. He, he's on the scene. The Messiah is here. And so Jesus steps on the scene and says, John, now is the time. I'm coming to you at this time in this place because now is the right time. So this baptism would not be fitting uh, in the middle of Jesus' ministry. That's not appropriate for it to happen then. It's not appropriate for Jesus to have been baptized in his childhood. It wouldn't have been appropriate for Jesus to be baptized in this way at the end of his life. But it's fitting now because it's at the outset of his public ministry where Jesus is now setting out to, to accomplish the mission, the purpose that he came to earth. And so we, first we simply recognize that Jesus being baptized by John was right and fitting because it's the, the right and fitting start to the, the beginning uh, of his messianic mission. Okay, so there's the nowness. It, it, he's baptized because it's at the outset of his, of his mission. But second, it's not just the now, it's, it's the us. John is included in the fittingness of this baptism. So, so why does John need to be involved? Why couldn't Jesus just go find someone else? Say, hey, hey, I need someone to baptize me, so just come on. No, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be fitting. It's fitting that John is doing it. Which again, it's not, I don't think, too hard to understand if we recognize who John is. He's the voice calling in the wilderness. His entire ministry was built on telling those who came out to him that repentance was necessary for anyone who would want to be in a right relationship with God. So he is the, the divinely appointed voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the promised one who's going to redeem Israel. And his point was that repentance was necessary. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. Don't trust Abraham being your father. You have to repent. You have to get ready for the Lord. And so if you want to enter this kingdom, if you want to be part of God's people, you can't trust your, your genealogy. You've got to repent and get ready before the Lord, get right before the Lord. That was John's ministry. And now the very person whose appearance fulfills the very purpose of his ministry, the one who will necessarily move John to the background, that one is here in the person of Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus, as the promised Messiah, goes to John and submits to his baptism because Jesus wants everyone to know not only that John's ministry was a divinely appointed one, but also that John's message was a divinely appointed message. And so he appoints the ministry of John. He's like, yeah, I'm doing this because he is the one God sent. But he's also saying the message that he's been preaching, that's right. That's, that's the message that you need to hear, namely that repentance and confession of sin are now the marker of God's people. 
And so Jesus, in going out to be baptized by John, he's affirming both the ministry and the message of John, giving it affirmation. So that's why it had to be John. But then the final aspect, the third aspect of this interaction, is the idea that John baptizing Jesus fulfills all righteousness. And so that's the answer. Let us do this now, for it's fitting and necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. That gets at the heart of why Jesus was baptized, this idea to fulfill all righteousness. Well, how do we understand that, that third phrase? Well, I, I think sometimes we, we can overcomplicate it. I think another way of stating the phrase to fulfill all righteousness is simply to say, it's right for us to do this because this is, this is God's will. Or it's fitting because this, this is part of God's plan. In fact, the words fulfill righteousness in Matthew's gospel, that, that, that's what it means. That God's, God's approved way of, of acting, God, obedience required by God. And so Jesus is saying we're doing this because this is part of God's will. Which I think helps. Jesus is saying to John, you and me doing this now is necessary for fulfilling God's will. It's part of God's plan. And I say that it helps because if we remember that Jesus, the very reason he has come to earth, the, the very reason that he took on flesh, is not to, to do, carry out his own will, but he came to do his Father's will. And so Jesus steps on the scene and he is the obedient Son. That's the whole reason he came. And so at the outset of his ministry, outside of his public ministry, it makes sense that he's going to, to do an act that, that symbolizes, that, that proves, I am the obedient son. He is submitting to the baptism that had been ordained through a prophet who spoke on behalf of the Lord. And in so doing, it makes sense that Jesus, this truly human man, is setting a pattern of submission to God's will. God requires that people repent and, and totally pledge their allegiance to him and follow him completely. And so Jesus at the outset is saying, this is what submission looks like. Repentance and faithfulness. Obedience to God the Father. And so being baptized is, is part of him submitting to the will of God and, and exemplifying what obedience looks like. And so while Jesus had no sin to repent of, right, we have to be careful there. Jesus is not sinful and while having no sin of his own to repent of, he's still being set forth as the obedient one. The one who is going to exemplify full and complete obedience. Who's going to perfectly obey the Father's will. Who's going to perfectly fulfill all righteousness. Something that no one had perfectly done before. So he's the unique son, the obedient son. Which is the other important point of saying why Jesus was baptized. Yeah, he's submitting to, to God's will. But the other part of it that has to be considered alongside of this idea of submitting to the Father's will is he's identifying with those that he came to save. And so he's submitting to God's will, but he's also identifying with those he came to save. And here's what I mean. Think about John's message. So John the Baptist, his, his message in the wilderness, it's not an ear-tickling message. Right? He, he's not, it's not a message that people are going to say, oh, I can't wait to go hear what he's got to say. Right? Remember, son, brood of viper, now, who warned you to flee of the wrath to come? Right? So, so it's, not a, it's not an easy message for people to hear. It was a harsh message to repent, to turn from sin and wait on the Lord. In fact, prophets of old were, were killed for that message. Right? God's people had killed prophets who brought similar messages. And yet here's John calling on people to repent, saying you have to turn around, you have to change your life, you have to follow the Lord. 
freshness of the nature, it was an extremely popular message. People are coming out in droves responding to this message. They were eager to return to the Lord. They were confessing their sins. And so, so you have the, this crowd, these groups of people coming. John's popularity is, is booming. And it's into this message and this ministry, into this crowd of people that the promised one comes. And so instead of, here's the promised Messiah, instead of going on top of a mountain and saying, hey, all of you less than me, come around and let me teach you, which he will do eventually. He's going to do that in a couple chapters. But instead of his first act, he's not up on, on a mountaintop, he's not up on a throne. Instead, the first thing he does is he goes out into the wilderness with all these other Judeans to this Elijah-like figure, and he's identified as one of the many. He's going because he's identified, identifying with those that he had come to save. Not that he needed to be saved, but as the one who had come to identify with the sinner. I mean, if you think about it at this point, there's dozens, maybe hundreds of people out with John. Maybe there's a long line. And there's nothing up to this point that would single out the Messiah in their midst. Maybe they're in line with the Messiah. And then Jesus gets up and in his, it's his turn next. And then there's this interaction. That could have been how this, how this played out. And I think that's the point. The Messiah came as just another one of us. Nothing about him that, that we should be awed of, of him. People weren't like, oh, there, there's the Shekinah glory around him. Get, get away. Here's the, here's the Messiah. No, he's out. In the dusty, abandoned wilderness, among all the other Judeans, those who had, who had gone out to hear this message. And I think that's the point. He came as one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this was necessary for the mission. He was one of us so that he could redeem us. His identification with fallen humanity was required for redemption. And so at the very outset, in the, in the event immediately before the public declaration, declaration that this is the Messiah who's embarking on, on this plan of redemption, you have the promised one looking like a normal Judean who's gone out to John to be baptized in the Jordan. And so Jesus submits to John's baptism, not because he's a sinner who needs to repent, but because God's plan for him as the Messiah is to identify, is for him to identify with his people. And if you think about it, if we step back and we consider the rest of the life of Jesus, this act gets to the heart of the gospel. This gets at the purpose of God's plan. I mean, this idea isn't foreign to the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah, or at least of a Messiah figure. I mean, many of the commentators say Matthew here is thinking of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. You remember Isaiah 53 and this prediction, this prophecy of this servant who's going to come and suffer on behalf of the people. I think that's right that Jesus is being put forth as the one who would be pierced for transgressions and crushed for iniquities and wounded to bring about healing, but not for his own, but for others. He's going to suffer for others. He's going to be pierced for the transgressions of others. He's going to be crushed for the iniquities of others. His wounds are going to bring healing to others. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to suffer for those he came to save. The Messiah came to identify with his people, and he came as the truly obedient son. And that obedience is what led him to be baptized by John. But that baptism by John wasn't the end of his obedience, was it? Where did his obedience lead? Think about Paul in Philippians 2. He was obedient to the point of death. 
Not, not just normal, not, not any ordinary death, but death on a cross. And so this identification with his people led him to suffer and die. And he does so for those he came to save. And the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 5 would say that God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came and identified with us in our sin and paid our debt so that we who identify with him might be declared righteous. That's, that's the great exchange of why Jesus came. He was treated as the unrighteous one, though he was the righteous one, so that we who are the unrighteous ones may be treated as the righteous one. That's, that's the gospel. That's why Jesus came and died and was raised three days later. And so this is why Jesus was baptized. It was about the outset of his public ministry, but it's also about the end of his public ministry. And so think of his baptism as a real precursor, a foreshadowing of what the end of his life would be. In fact, this word baptism is used by Jesus two more times, but he's not talking about baptism here. It's a baptism of fire that he's referring to as death and burial and resurrection. And so I think it's right to see here a, a foreshadowing of how his life will end, a death, burial, and resurrection that awaits him. So that's why Jesus was baptized. He goes out to John. And so we see he is the promised one who'd come to identify with his people and to obey the will of the Father. But that's not the only thing we see in these verses. Let's, let's move quickly through these last three points. It's not, not only the baptism, but, but what immediately follows. And really, these last three points are, are all are one thing. It's like a, a triage of affirmations of his identity. So look, first, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he, immediately he went up from the water. Doesn't mean he levitated, but, but he went up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And so how, how does the, the heavens opening attest to the identity of Jesus? Because th this idea, that this cosmic sign, it's not foreign to the Bible. The, the activities of the heavens opening up in this way would have been recognized as a clear mark of God's at work. God's, God's doing something in this time and place, which should have been a clear message to all those who had seen it. God himself is at work in, this is not an ordinary man anymore. That This is the one you've been waiting on. I mean, this, this is language that's used to describe the imminence of God's speaking or God's revelation. In fact, if you want to write this down, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. The prophet Elijah has a vision, and this is exactly what, what, what is recounted. In Ezekiel chapter 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles, here's Ezekiel talking about what happened. I'm, I'm among the exiles. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Right? That's the same language there. The heavens are opened. And later, not just Ezekiel 1, but Isaiah chapter 64. Again, oh, here's the cry of the prophet. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Right? When heavens are opened, there's divine intervention. God's at work. And so Matthew, when he says the heavens are opened, he's saying this was a cosmic sign related to what was happening right then and there in the Jordan River. This isn't just another Jewish man from Nazareth coming to be baptized. This is something much bigger going on. The heavens are opened, but that's not, that's not all that happens. Verse 16 continues. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so we see the Spirit descending upon this man, upon Jesus, in the form of a dove, like a dove. And so just like the heavens opening, so the, the, the Spirit anointing the chosen one of God is, is not foreign to the rest of the Scriptures. In fact, the, 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 the most immediately 
uh, applicable con- Old Testament context here is Isaiah chapter 11. Where again, we see Matthew who's, who's, who's helping us understand Jesus in light of what came before. But in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a very specific and clear messianic promise concerning the, the, the one who would come. And in Isaiah chapter 11, maybe you heard this a couple months ago during Christmas time. This is a Christmas passage, but listen to what, how this Messiah is described. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. And a branch from Jesse's roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so when, when David's son, when, when Jesse's offspring comes, here's how you're going to know. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Messiah, the promised one, is going to be marked by the, the, the anointing of the Spirit. And Matthew, think, think God's been silent for 400 years. And here we are, Jesus steps on the scene, he's baptized, the heavens are open, and the Spirit descends on him. This is something to, to, to behold. Matthew says, behold, look, here's what happened next. Isaiah's promise of the Messiah contained the coming of the Spirit. And Matthew is saying, this is the one. Now, of course, we, we, we know Jesus had the Spirit prior to this. However, this is a unique anointing of the Spirit for the mission. The Spirit comes upon him as, as, as evidence that Jesus, Jesus is now visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake his messianic mission. So, so he's the king of David. Remember the anointing that, that the king or the chosen one, they'd be anointed. And the Spirit would, would be the one who would anoint the king for the specific task. And so here the Spirit is anointing Jesus as the, the, the Davidic messianic king. Who's going to lead him, we'll see the very next chapter, on his mission. And so it's not clear why the Spirit descends like a dove. Why the, why the dove? Is that a, a specific reference to that type of bird? Is it just a, a bird? And, and people talk about the, the after the flood and the bird goes. And, and there's, there's, there's after the flood this new creation and, and the bird is represented with that. Some people say, well, the, the hovering nature of the Spirit in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. Well, that's what's being alluded to. We don't really know. I think it's best simply to recognize the Spirit visibly falls on the Messiah anointing and equipping him for his unique mission. Now, mission has started. And so we see the heavens open and the Spirit descends. The Messiah is anointed and prepared for the mission. And if those two signs aren't enough, verse 17 gives us one more. So you have the heavens opening up, you see the Spirit descending like a dove. Thirdly, verse 17, you hear a voice from heaven. Verse 17, and behold, look. Matthew's wanting us to to give our attention Look, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this voice isn't specifically identified, but we all know who this is. This is the voice of the Father, the Father who sent the Son. And the Father's saying, Everyone, pay attention. Listen to what he says, Mark would add. Listen to him. He's my Son, he's the one I've sent. I'm pleased with him, I love him. And he's, he's, he's doing, he's carrying out my mission. And this is a very public, open confession, publicly attesting to the beloved son. This is the obedient son. He's doing this and it's, it's pleasing in my sight. Not only this baptism, but all he's gonna do, I, I'm pleased by this. 
When he's on the cross being crucified by sinful men, I'm pleased by that. When he suffers and dies and is going to be majestically raised three days later and, and ascends into heaven to my right hand, I'm going to be pleased with that. This is my son. Listen to him. Pay attention. That, that's what the Father is saying here. So it's not only the heavens, not only the spirit, it's a declaration of the Father. And all of these supernatural events are working together to attest to the identity to the, of the one who had just been baptized, who had just said, I'm coming to identify with these people, with my fellow men. And so we have the king is proclaimed and anointed and the mission is underway. And we're going to see that the start of the mission is going to, going to take, take a direction we may not anticipate next week when, when Matthew now has established the identity of the king and we're going to see the king take his first step. It's going to be in a place maybe we wouldn't anticipate. But the identity of the king, that's the purpose here. And so, so what are a few takeaways for us in terms of application? I just have two of them. I think we see here, it's a brief passage, but, but it's a heavy passage. It's pregnant with meaning. I think the first thing that's easy to, to skim over, specifically in light of the end, is that, that we see in these verses, we, we get a glimpse into the Trinity. Did you notice that? And we, we shouldn't take for granted the clarity in which the triune activity of God is described in, in these few verses. This baptism, this, this is a place that, that makes very clear that there are distinct persons within the Godhead. That's what I mean when I say the Trinity. There's three persons within the one essence of God. There's one God and three unique persons. And that, that, that's at work here. And so when it comes to the Trinity, you may hear people say, well, there's no, no the Trinity's not even in the Bible. It's not true. And so where they, while there may not be a chapter go to and say, this is the Trinity, chapter and verse, there are multiple places in the New Testament where we see the Trinity on display where each person places. And so just think about it. You, you see the obedience of the Son, Jesus in flesh, obeying the will of the Father. Then you have the Spirit of God descending on the Son. So, so the Spirit is not the same as the Son because the Spirit descends on the Son. And then you have a, a third, a voice saying, this is my Son whom I am well pleased, who we know is also behind the sending of the Spirit. So you have three distinct persons. Yeah, this isn't just one God saying, well, okay, I've been the creator and then I've been the father and now I want to be the son and then I'm going to be the spirit. No, all three are active right here now. God doesn't just take on modes and say, okay, now I'm going to interact with the world in this way. That's, that's heresy and that's not, this is, this is, that heresy of modalism is directly contradicted by what happens here at the baptism. The father doesn't save himself, I'm pleased with myself. No, the father says, I'm pleased with the son and the spirit descends on the son. All three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, are at work. And what's beautiful is that this shows us how redemption is Trinitarian. All three persons are necessary for you and me to be saved. But yet we worship Christ and we love Jesus, but without a spirit, we don't have salvation. Because in this context, Jesus doesn't accomplish the plan without the spirit. And then later when he ascends into heaven, we are not saved without the sending of the Spirit. And Jesus doesn't have a plan. He doesn't have this eternal plan to save a people apart from the will of the Father. 
And so we have the Father planning and the Spirit equipping and the Son accomplishing, all harmoniously interacting to save you and me. What a majestic thing. We see the Trinity at work in our salvation. You're not saved without the three-part personages of God. Without the Trinity, we are, there's no salvation apart from the three persons. I mean, it's especially important in light of that to, to recognize that at the baptism, the identity of Jesus doesn't change. Because some people will read Psalm, number, Psalm 2 and say, well, look, this is when Jesus becomes the Son. And so they, they say this, this is when Jesus becomes the divinely appointed Messiah. He just grew up normally, was just a regular man, just, just was born like anyone else. But, but here at the baptism, when he receives the Spirit, that's when he becomes the eternal Son. And that's wrong. His identity doesn't change. This is why John's gospel makes perfectly clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. In the beginning. And so his person, his identity doesn't change. But, but something happens here in that the public recognition of his identity is transformed. And this is the one who has been sent, the Davidic son, the Messiah, who's now on his mission. And so now people recognize, wow, this, this is the one who grew up in, in Nazareth, and, and now he's on his mission He's not just a carpenter's son. He's the Messiah. And so John's baptism of Jesus was God's desired way to bring about the very clear public recognition and declaration, Jesus is the one. Listen to him. And so it's the the outset of his ministry that we see. And the last point just of application to recognize here is that we see, I think, in Jesus' baptism, a precursor of Christian baptism. And so I think we do see in Jesus' baptism a precursor to Christian baptism. And so we, we, we certainly want to recognize the difference between John's baptism of repentance that Jesus is submitting to here and the practice of Christian baptism, which would be uh, practiced way after this time in, in the early church when, when Jesus sends his spirit. So Pentecost, in the book of Acts, we see Christian baptism taking root. So we want to keep them distinct, but I do think that there are connections between them. And I think the most clear way to understand the connection is by this statement. Jesus was baptized in order to identify with those he came to save, whereas Christians are baptized in order to identify with the one who saves them. He was baptized to identify with us. We are baptized to identify with him. You see that? Jesus is baptized to identify with us, and we are baptized to identify with him. Okay? This is the meaning of Christian baptism. It's not a Baptist version of baptism. This is Christian baptism. We can't separate faith in Christ from baptism because baptism shows our identification with the one who was crucified, buried, and raised again. We can't separate faith in Christ, union, identification with Christ from the exercise of baptism. Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life of obedience. He suffered, died, and was raised three days later. That's the gospel, right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and raised three days later in accordance with the scriptures. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. And Christian baptism The message that's proclaimed when someone is baptized is, I'm identifying with this man who was crucified, buried, and raised again. And so when when, when a Christian is baptized, 
they're a Christian. They're someone who's, who's repented of sins and put their faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus unites the sinner to the Son. In the aftermath of union with Christ, you, you become a believer. You're united with Jesus. And the next step is that you publicly identify and proclaim that union. And so when you're baptized, you say, I'm identifying with my Savior. I'm, I'm telling the world. I'm one of his followers. I, I'm, I'm publicly declaring my allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm affiliated with him and I don't care what comes because of this affiliation. Because I am his and, my, and I'm obeying him. And it's not just this general affiliation or general affirmation of, of association with Jesus. It is specific identification with his Death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when we baptize, we immerse the believer under the water. It's symbolic. There's a message that's proclaimed. I think it's wrong to sprinkle a child. I don't think that's baptism. I think baptism is a, is a public declaration that symbolizes that you've been united to Jesus in a death like his and a resurrection like his. That's how the Apostle Paul understands it in the letter to the Colossians. And so a, a, a Christian, you're not saved by baptism. You're saved before you're baptized. But baptism is a public profession of your faith. And so to have a Christian who's not baptized, that's, that's wrong and that's disobedient to the clear teaching of Scripture. And so if you're a Christian... You're not saved by your baptism. You're saved by Christ alone. So you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him, and you're saved. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and he was in paradise with Jesus. Right? So, so, so someone says, if you had to be baptized, you wouldn't be a Christian. That's, that's not true. It's salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Right? Baptism isn't an add-on. But baptism is of utmost importance because Jesus sets the pattern and commands obedience to, to this act. I mean, his commission at the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, will say, baptize, go, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the Christian who follows Jesus, who has not been baptized, is not following Jesus as they ought. It's a matter of obedience. And so it's not, it's not a mark of a mature believer to say, well, okay, now I finally reached the point where I can, where I can be baptized. No, it's, I'm following Jesus. And I want everyone to know, it's a public affirmation. I am part of his family. And so that's why we baptize followers of Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus and you're saved. God does the work and you're saved. And we say, you, you have been saved and now we want to baptize you as a public profession and declaration of what's happened to you. So it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. You've been united to Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's symbolic. It expresses a spiritual reality, union with Christ. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, but you've never been baptized by being immersed and then raised again, well, I want to talk to you about that. I think you should be baptized. And I, I, I have a, a small little booklet that I, I'd be happy to give to you that says why I ought to be baptized, and I'd be happy to talk with you about it. But, but Christians ought to follow through in baptism. It is, what, it is one of the two ordinances that the church holds to. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so if you're not a Christian, 
You ought to become a Christian, and then you ought to be baptized. You don't need to be baptized until you become a Christian. And so if you're not a Christian, your call isn't to be baptized. Don't come to me and say, well, I want my kids to be baptized to make sure they're safe. That my bapt- your, ba- your kids being baptized will do nothing in terms of securing them. It's just getting them wet. They're secure when they repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And so that's what you need to pray for your kids. That's what you need to talk to your kids about. And so if you're not a Christian, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And then we can talk about baptism after that. But if you are a Christian, if you've been saved and you're trusting Christ, you ought to be baptized. And I'd be happy to do that. We as a church will be happy to welcome you and and to baptize you into fellowship here. And the last point, just because I'm thinking many of you are probably already Christians. You've already been baptized. And so I think a point of application for us, just, just to think about with Jesus identifying as us, think about the words of the Father to the Son in this interaction. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Believer, if you've been united to Christ, do you know what the Father thinks of you this morning? He is well pleased with you because you're in the Son. You are welcomed into the Father's house, into His family. He loves you because, not because you've done the right, not because you've had a good week. You didn't mess up too much, or you, you did enough good, right? Some of us did really bad, and we have no merit to stand on, but we're accepted and well-pleasing to God because of what Christ has done. And so as believers, let us, let us rejoice that Christ has come and identified with us so that we could be presented acceptable to our Father, and we're welcomed and received. Well, before we respond, let, let, let's pray, and then we will, we will respond.